You know, I was never more disappointed and shocked in my entire life than when I found out that Billy Graham didn't have the entire Bible memorized. And, you know, Johnny Carson actually looked a little bit shocked by that fact as well, didn't he? And, uh, but in all seriousness, you know, what, what is really shocking is not that Billy Graham would not have the Bible memorized. The shocking thing is, if you stop and think about it, is the reference that he made to people in other parts of the world. He spoke of Koreans down in Asia. Uh, he spoke of Nigerians in Africa who had the entire New Testament memorized, one guy he knew, in two languages. And if you just stop to think about that for a second, uh, here is this ancient collection of stories and poems and historical records written by an obscure people living along the eastern Mediterranean coast in a plot of land the size of New Jersey. And yet on the other side of the world, some two to 3,000 years after these documents had been written, these people have been committing these things to memory. Isn't that shocking and surprising? And of course, the Bible is not just the most memorized book in the world. The Bible is the most popular, it's the most read and studied and written about and translated book in the entire world. You know, the Bible continues to be the most influential and best-selling book in the world by a large margin. It's been translated in its entirety into 670 languages uh, and portions of it into over 3,000 languages. And it is far and away the most revered and loved book in the history of the world. Now, of course, it's not revered and loved by all people, is it? Uh, Just last year, GQ magazine listed the Bible as 21 classic books, quote, you don't need to read, suggesting The Notebook by Augusta Kristoff in its place, which is bold advice coming from a magazine known for its advice on manscaping and articles like, can a puffer jacket be high fashion? Now, I wouldn't expect GQ magazine to give the Bible a ringing endorsement, but I do wonder today how you all feel about this book. Now, I know some of you, you love the Bible, and you read it daily, and you are intrigued by it, you're interested in it, you can get lost in it. But of course, there are others in this room for whom that's just not the case. Now, some of you, you read it, but you just don't really like it. You know, you like some verses, you know, a psalm here and there, uh, a proverb, you know, some of the passages in the Gospels, but, 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 you know, the stuff in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you're just like, I, I just, I'm not that interested in it. And of course, there are some in here who, maybe for you, the Bible is a problem. You know, for my parents' generation, uh, it was the case that they could go to uh, sections of the Bible like uh, the, the conquering of the land of Canaan. And they would happily allegorize that and talk about how, you know, we, we, we need to conquer the lands that God has given us and drive out those enemies before us. And my generation and below reads that text and just asks questions like, how is this not genocide? And the Bible for many people is more of a hindrance than it is a help to their faith and their desire to follow God. You know, um, I've come to realize more and more as I talk to younger people that we are living in a generation-wide breakdown of trust in the Bible. And so many young people are seeing more and more the Bible as an obstacle to their own faith. 
And so I, I just want to ask the question as we begin this new series, what can we do about that? For those of you who might love the Bible, my desire for you is that throughout this series, you would be further inspired to get into the text of Scripture. And maybe you're here today and you respect the Bible, you revere the Bible, but you, quite frankly, are one of those people, you're just bored by it, you wished you liked it more, you hear other people like it, but you just have a hard time getting into it yourself. And I hope that you find yourself intrigued and inspired and drawn more deeply in. And of course, if you are here today and you, you find the Bible difficult and hard because of uh, some of the stuff that's in it, my hope is that throughout this series that you will find some of your own questions addressed, some of your own difficulties, maybe, maybe finding some resolution and in fact, uh, throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is in between our first service and our second service, I'm going to be taking some space and just filling in questions. And so if throughout this talk, some questions are provoked in your mind and you're like, I would love to talk a little bit more about that, uh, what we're going to do is five minutes after we break at the end of this service, I'm going to invite folks to either stick around or come back in. And we're just going to have a live Q&A time. It's going to be run on our live stream. And then we'll try to cap it about 10 minutes before the next service because they wouldn't like it if we just ran into the next service, would they? But what I want to do today is I'd like to do an introduction to the Bible. You know, it was Vince Lombardi who started off the beginning of every year with this football team by holding up a football and saying, this is a football, right? And sometimes it's important just to go back to the basics. You know, the Bible is something we read, we study every week as we gather as the people of God. My main job is to spend my week pouring over and praying over and studying the text of Scripture and preparing messages and sermons from the Bible to preach to you all. And one of our core values as a church is, look, my, my goal is not every week to get up and give you, you know, kind of like a TED Talk and to give you my best self-help. I don't got a lot for you in that regard, you know? I just don't have that much to offer you. My life hasn't been that rich and full and meaningful. But my work is to try to bring before you God's word. And so it's important for us just to pause and ask, what is the Bible anyway? And why do people pour so much time over it? And, and why has it been so translated and so read and so studied? And why is it so well loved? And so we want to just kind of do a primer on the Bible today. And uh, I, I want us to um, just make three simple statements about the Bible. Now, don't don't be misled by the three simple statements. There is going to be a little bit of content today, and it's going to be a little bit maybe luxury. Um, but don't worry, there's a little payoff at some point in the sermon for those of you who can tune in and listen. Uh, there'll be a little payoff. So just kind of listen and look for that little special nugget for you. Um, so number one, the first point I want to make is that the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of ancient writings. The Bible is not a book. It's a collection of ancient writings. It's more like an anthology, or maybe you could say a library full of a diverse array of writings that were written by many different authors over 1,500 years. Peter puts it like this. Notice what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He, he speaks here about men speaking, that's plural. 
uh, a little earlier in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, he refers to the sacred writings, plural. And so in the ancient world, you know, they didn't um, so much think about uh, the Bible as a book like this. Uh, in, in their mindset, the Bible was a collection of these ancient writings. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, what you discover is that this is precisely what the collection of scriptures looked like in the ancient world. It was a collection of scrolls. And I don't know if you remember this, but in Luke chapter 4, it describes Jesus launching into one of his first sermons in Nazareth. And it says he got up to preach, and listen to what it says. When he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue at the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and look what it says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but he describes a scroll being given to Jesus. And that's because in the ancient synagogues, there were about 24 scrolls that contained what we know of today now as the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament scriptures. And... Um, you might, uh, here's a fun fact, just, you guys want a little fun fact? Okay. This is just a little parenthesis. I was, I was debating whether or not you actually want the fun fact, but I think you guys want it. I can see it. You're, 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 you, guys are, you guys are nine o'clock people. You get here at nine o'clock. That means you're serious disciples of Jesus. Pray for the 1045. They're compromised, <laughs> but not you. So check this out. The oldest complete manuscript that we have of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament scriptures, dates from 1000 AD. And uh, it's actually housed in Russia. And it's the oldest complete manuscript we have of the Old Testament. Now, for, 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 for decades, for, for generations, that was about all we had when it came to the a complete set of the Hebrew Bible. Now, there was a complete manuscript of the Greek Old Testament that dates all the way back to the fourth century that was put together with the Christian writings for the uh, full Bible that we have. But for the Hebrew Bible, it dated back to uh, 1000 AD. What's fascinating is that in 1947, there was a massive discovery in Israel. There was a young Jewish boy who was out kind of wandering in the fields, and he, he was keeping watch over his flocks by night. <laughs> An angel didn't appear, but his, his flocks actually disappeared off into some cave. And so he threw a rock into the cave to get his sheep back, and he heard a crack. And he's like, what was that? He goes in, and he discovers one of the most magnificent archaeological finds of our lifetime. And it was a set, uh, or it was a series, actually a thousand Hebrew manuscripts uh, of, this, uh, of, of the Old Testament. And is, um, these manuscripts dated all the way back to 200 years before Christ. And so just like that, our understanding of what the Hebrew Bible looked like way back when took a giant leap back 1,200 years. Isn't that amazing? But what's even more amazing is that when they actually began to pour over these texts, and um, this is actually a, a copy of the famous Isaiah scroll, there was a complete uh, copy of the book of Isaiah in this cave. And when they compared that copy of Isaiah to the Isaiah that, you, that we had in the thousand-year-old, or the manuscript from 1000 AD, um, they were virtually identical. 
which tells you that these Hebrew scribes were doing their homework when they were copying manuscript after manuscript and passing it on, on and on and on and on. And so anyway, that was just a fun little fact. Now, for those of you who, you know, you, it wasn't that fun for you, you were like, OK, come on, let's just keep getting through. I do have something for you, puppies. <laughs> There's another one. And one more. Isn't that great? Yeah, see, so don't say I've never done anything fun for you. I've never done anything practical in my sermons. There you are, puppies. All right, so let's get back. Okay, so this collection of ancient scrolls dating back to the first century uh, and, and to the centuries actually prior to that that we call the Bible, this collection of ancient writings, uh, for those of you who are new to Christianity, they can be divided into two parts, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament are the writings that were written some uh, 500 to 1,500 years before Jesus came on the scene. And then there was the New Testament writings that were written after Jesus came. And the Old Testament could be divided into three parts. In fact, uh, you hear references to this in the New Testament. Jesus will often refer to uh, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, these three parts. And that's because in the ancient uh, mindset of the Jews, they divided their Old Testament writings into three parts. There was the Torah, uh, the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim. And uh, if you've heard the word Tanakh, has anybody heard the word Tanakh? It's what the Jews call their Old Testament scriptures, and it's, uh, it's kind of an alliteration of these three words, referring to the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, the New Testament is divided into the Gospels, uh, these letters that were written by the followers of Jesus, the apostles, and then the final kind of apocalyptic vision in the book of Revelation. So this collection of writings emerged out of the people of Israel and their experience and their encounters with God in the Old Testament or with Jesus in the New Testament. And it's interesting because the, the Jews, of course, were like any other ancient civilization. They had prophets who viewed, but, but they had these prophets who viewed their own history, their story as anything but ordinary. And they understood themselves to be central a central part of what God was doing for all of humanity. And these old prophets, they were literary geniuses. And they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write these epic narratives and sophisticated poetry. And they were masters of metaphor and storytelling. And they leveraged all of this to talk about God and life and the human struggle. And these, these writings that they created were produced over a period of 1,500 years, starting way back with Israel's uh, murky origins in Egypt, leading up to the kingdom under David and his ancestors, or, and, and his, uh, you know, what's the opposite of ancestors? Your sons, thank you. That was so... But then uh, the Jews were conquered, they were sent into exile, and then there was another fertile point of prophetic work that came out of that. And then they returned to the land after exile. And again, that was a very fertile time uh, when the second temple was built, and they were beginning to reform their own identity. And it's in that time that the, the, the full Jewish Bible containing the Torah, the Netvim, and the Ketuvim uh, were put into their final form, and they were carefully curated. And then, of course, after Jesus, 
the disciples go writing these letters and writing these biographies of Jesus and their experience with him. But here's the point of all of this, is that when you open up the Bible, it's not like if I handed you a theology textbook written by one author. Uh, The Bible is not a theology textbook written by one author that has one clear way of writing the whole way through. No, the, the Bible is this collection of diverse writings. And there are all different kinds of genres of literature in the, in the Old Testament and in the New. Uh, there's apocalyptic literature, which is this kind of wild, visionary literature. There's poetry. There's narrative. Uh, there's history. There's archetypal history. And there's, there's genealogical records. And then there's uh, these songs and hymns. And there's, there's a wide array of types of writings that you encounter when you get into the Bible. Now, we'll get more into that in the weeks to come, but I just want to leave that there for now. Are you guys good? Are we doing okay? Do you guys need more puppies? Okay, okay, we're doing okay. So number one, the Bible is an ancient collection of writings. It's not a book. Uh, Second point, the Bible is written by a diverse array of human authors. Now, listen to me very carefully. Uh, There is... um, A misunderstanding, I think, that Christians often have when they come to the Bible. And that's that the, the, sometimes it's perceived that Christians view the Bible the way Mormons view the Book of Mormon or the way uh, uh, Muslims view the Quran. And um, let me see if I've got a picture here. Oh, here we go. So... The, the Mormons view, view the, the Book of Mormon is that uh, one day Joseph Smith was out in the fields and the forests and um, there was an angel that appeared to him and basically showed him where he could find these golden tablets. And uh, he found this, this package of golden tablets that were inscribed by, you know, this angelic messenger and then he translates them. This is not the view of the New Testament or the Old when it comes to its own writings. The Bible did not fall from heaven out of the sky. Uh, Nor uh, do we understand the scriptures the way uh, the Muslims understand the Quran. You see, in the understanding of the Muslims, they, they believe that the Quran was dictated by Allah to the prophet Muhammad, and he basically wrote down everything Allah said, and Allah spoke in Arabic, which is why it's not proper to translate uh, the Quran into any other language other than Arabic, because that's God's own language. But in contrast to both the Mormons and the Muslims, uh, what, the, what the Christians have always believed and taught, and what the Jews before them believed and taught, is that the Bible is written by human authors. Now, you might say, of course it is, Josh, right? And why is that news? Why is that important? Well, it's important because of this. Listen, um, when you read through the, the, this collection of ancient writings, y- you notice the humanity of it right away. It's not a dirty little secret. Nobody's trying to hide it. It's very obvious. And so you have Paul writing a letter uh, to his protege, Timothy, and at the end he says, look, uh, when you come visit me, make sure you bring my cloak and my books. Or um, you'll read one of the Psalms of David and it comes out of a deep, painful time in his own life. 
or you'll enter into the Proverbs and what you're encountering there are some musings of, of King Solomon or uh, King Lemuel or Agur who spent time observing the world around them and thinking about it and, and concentrating on it and then making observations about it and then putting them into these nice little proverbial sayings or... Uh, you might get to uh, the book of Chronicles and what you're finding there is some historians who did their homework and they went back through the records and they make reference to those records and they put them in, uh, they got the genealogies down and then they get the history of Israel down or then you get to the gospel of Luke and Luke says, look, I researched, I did all of my homework, I checked all of my sources and I put together this piece of writing. My, my point is, is that the Bible is written by human authors and it has all of the limitations of a human author. They were limited to their time and their space and the language they spoke and their writing styles. There's a variety of different writing styles. Some are more well-educated writers, like Luke's Greek is way more sophisticated than the Gospel of John. And it's because these are different people who were formed different ways and then they brought who they were to the table when the Spirit of God inspired them to write these texts. And so the Bible is written by human authors. It didn't drop from the sky. So number one, what are we seeing? We're seeing that the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of ancient writings. Number two, we're seeing that the Bible is a collection of ancient writings that were written by human authors. As uh, Peter writes, holy men of God were moved. It was men that were moved and they spoke and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But the third observation we have about what the Bible is, is it's not only written by human authors, but it is inspired or breathed out by God. So the Bible is inspired or breathed out by God. But what do we mean by that? Let's just talk for a little bit about what we mean by divine inspiration. So I want you to look back at this passage of scripture in Second uh, Peter chapter one, verse 20 and 21. Look what it says. It says, for no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that phrase that it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the way that's framed in the original Greek, it can be used to describe a ship that has a sailing mast and it's carried along by the wind. And if you ask the question, what is being moved you would say the boat is being moved. And then you ask the question, what is moving the boat? And it's the wind. And that's so too with the scriptures. Human authors were writing, but what was carrying them along, what was moving them, what was inspiring them to write what they wrote was the spirit of the living God. Or as Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. It is br the breath of God breathed out through these human authors so that what they wrote was what God desired them to write so that we could have revelation and understanding of who God is and what he is about in this world. Now, another example you could, you could think of when you think about the humanity and the divinity of scripture is the incarnation of Jesus. You see, what do we believe about Jesus? We believe that Jesus was fully God and he's also fully man. 
and that his humanity in no ways compromised his divinity, and his divinity was in no ways compromised by his humanity. He was true God and true man. And because Jesus was human, Jesus he experienced life as a human being. He was fully human. He had to be potty trained at some point in his life. He nursed at his mother's breast. He, he, he grew and he grew in his understanding and his self-understanding. And he was limited in time and space. He, he wasn't floating all over the place, you know. Um, he, he chose to limit his, his divinity to take on humanity. And yet, that didn't in any ways compromise his divinity. He is fully, 100% true God. And that's why we worship Jesus. And so too with the Bible. The Bible is fully, it's a fully human document. You can study its origins, its development, uh, kind of the process that all went through to get these documents in place and what put them together. And yet... Although it's fully human, it's a fully human process, we also believe that God was fully engaged in that process so that this collection of writings that we have is what God wanted us to have. Does that make sense? But that might raise a question for some of you, which is, yeah, but, but what's unique about this collection of writings? You know, we say in our culture all the time that other things are inspired, you know, Bach, is inspired or Shakespeare is inspired. Uh, and, and what we mean by that is that there was some sort of like heightened kind of like thing that they brought into the world. And, and th there was something divine about what they brought, you know? Is that what we're talking about with the Bible? It's just kind of, you know, something kind of heightened and inspiring, like Bach or Beethoven. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the Bible is uniquely inspired that God was uniquely at work in these writings in a way that he's not been at work in other writings. You say, well, that's a big claim. Is there any evidence to back up that claim? And let me just draw out a few lines of evidence that might demonstrate, at least it's helpful for me as I think about the Bible being inspired by God. Number one, Jesus affirmed the inspiration of scripture. We heard earlier today that verse from Matthew chapter five where Jesus says, uh, um, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And then he says, not one jot, one tittle will pass away from the law until everything is fulfilled. Jesus had a very high view of the Bible. And because Jesus had a high view of the Bible, those of us who are his disciples will also have a high view of the Bible. Now, we'll get a little bit more into that next week, so I'm going to move on. So we, we believe that, that the Bible is inspired because Jesus taught us that the Bible was unique and inspired. In fact, Jesus taught the Bible. He preached the Bible. He studied the Bible. You know, one of Jesus' main jobs on earth was he was a rabbi. And what did a rabbi do? They were teachers. And what did they teach? Well, we heard it read earlier in Luke chapter four. He got up in synagogues and he taught the Bible. In fact, the reason why we continue on this practice of teaching and preaching scriptures every week is because this is what Jesus has taught us to do. And Jesus said, disciples, when they are fully trained, will become like their master. And so if Jesus studied and taught and read and valued and prized the ancient collection of these writings, then we who are his followers will do the same. 
So Jesus affirmed that it was God's word, but not just Jesus, but also throughout the history of the church, many people have experienced the Bible as God's word. And I think probably this could be some of your story in here today. I'm sure, I'm confident that it's mine. I have experienced God speak to me uniquely through this collection of ancient writings in a way that God has not spoken to me in anything else. I mean, I love to surf. I love to be out in the ocean. And God speaks to me when I'm out surfing. He whispers in my ear when a set comes in. When I drop into the wave, I can just, if you're in a barrel and you can hear this while you're sitting in this. And some of you, of course, feel like God speaks to me in nature and that's valid and that's true. God does reveal himself to us through the things that he has made. But there is a unique and a special way in which God has revealed himself through the scriptures. These texts that are breathed out by God and, and there, there are a few of us in this room who have, not experiencing, who have not experienced God expose us or comfort us and rebuke us or lead us or reveal more of his goodness and love to us and give us hope and freedom and joy through these texts of scriptures. And it's not just us. I mean, this is the history of the church and it's not just you know, in one part of the world. It's all over the world. This is a transcultural experience because people in this text encounter the transcendent God. But the Bible, um, oh boy, I'm kind of behind on my, my slides here. I better catch up. But a, th- a, third, a third evidence is not only the evidence of Jesus. Jesus affirmed that these texts are sacred and unique. Not only the evidence of, of experience, we've experienced this to be God's word, but there is also something incredibly unusual about this collection of writings. You know, the, these are written by dozens of different authors over a period of 1,500 years And the level of interconnectedness of these texts is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, A couple years back, somebody put together this uh, diagram that sort of illustrates the interconnected nature of the scripture. Some of you have may have seen this, but if you look down at the bottom, each one of those bars represents the number of times one, that pa- they, they all represent a passage of scripture and the length of the bar represents how many times it's quoted in another part of the Bible. And then they start drawing these lines and when you put it all together, there are 65,000 interconnections in the scriptures. And this, 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 this text is remarkable. It is, as uh, Jordan Peterson remarked, uh, the first hyperlinked you know, piece of literature in the ancient world. You just press on one verse and it takes you somewhere else. And it's just remarkable. But it's not just that it's interconnected and it has all of these hyperlinks. The Bible itself tells one unfolding narrative. And this, to me, is one of the most shocking things of all. Even though, you know, when you study the, the history of the development of the Bible, and I, you know, if we want to get into some of those questions in our Q&A time, we can. It's pretty interesting to think about, like, well, when and how, and what's the evidence of all of that? But 
regardless of how you put it all together, if you go all the way back some 1,000 to 1,500 years before Jesus, and you just start having these people who, beginning maybe with oral tradition and experiences of God, and then ultimately putting them into writing in this you know, era, and then in this era, and then under a Davidic monarchy, and then out in exile, and then coming back, and, and then you've got sages, and you've got uh, philosophers like the author of Ecclesiastes and poets, and, and you've got all these different things, and they're all put together. And the shocking thing is, though, is that the, the, this, this diverse collection of writings tells one unfolding story. The story goes something like this. I, I just want to contrast this image <laughs> with this one. But you know, it begins with creation, and then it moves into human fall, into sin. And then ultimately, the story finishes with God redeeming and restoring everything that was affected and infected with human sin and rebellion when Christ returns and renews all things. And so this is a story about creation brought into being, creation fallen because of our own human sin and violence and darkness, and creation regained by God's powerful healing love in Jesus Christ. As J.R.R. Tolkien commented, the Bible is a story of a larger kind. And, and for most of us, I think we find, and, and this is true not just for American Bible readers, but African and Korean and uh, Latin American and, and all over the world, as, as people read this story, they find this deep personal resonance. And I think this is why the Bible just has not gone away. You know, it was uh, Voltaire who, who once declared that the day was coming when the Bible would be completely put out of business and it would be left as a relic in museums. And within a hundred years of Voltaire making that statement, his own house was converted into a Bible distribution center. <laughs> the Bible was outlawed in China and it proceeded to have 200 million underground copies and counting printed and dispersed throughout the nation. The Bible is not going away. And I think one of the reasons why it's not going anywhere is because human beings, as we engage in this story, yeah, there are tensions. There is weird, crazy stuff. There's disturbing stuff and jarring stuff. And we'll get into all of that. I'm not trying to minimize all of that. But what I am saying is that in spite of the tensions and the disjunctive nature of this unfolding narrative and all of the tensions and sometimes weirdness, it tells this unfolding story of humanity and all things that we find deeply resonates with us. Like the first couple, I have felt myself to be in a world that is gift and also responsibility. Like Adam, I have hidden myself from God. Like Eve, I have been deceived. Like those tower builders at Babel, I've tried to make a name for myself. You know, like Israel, I have been enslaved and in need of an exodus. I have wandered in a wilderness looking for a promised land. And like Pharaoh, I myself have come underneath the judgment of God for my own stupidity and the way I have hurt other people. And like the leper in the gospel narratives, I've needed to be cleansed. And like the woman caught in adultery, I've needed to hear those words, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And like Mary and Martha, I've been grieved at the loss of somebody I loved. And I've needed Jesus to say, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And when I look at, into the future at this vision and revelation of the day when there will be no more tears or crying or death for the former things have passed away because he says, I am making all things new. Like that makes my heart sing. There is something about this story of a larger kind a story of the cosmos that so resonates with the human heart that we have never been able to get away from this collection of ancient writings. And of course, this collection of ancient writings leads us to Jesus. So going back to Peter, he says this. In light of what the Bible is, he says in chapter 1, verse 19, you do well to pay attention to it. You do well to pay attention to the Bible as a lamp shining in a dark place until the morning star rises in your hearts. You would do well to pay attention to the light, this revelation that is given to us, that's been given to the world, that people have found it so resonant. Pay attention to this. You know, we are in right now what sociologists call an attention economy, where what's a what the highest commodity in our culture right now is your attention. And the real question is, is what is getting your attention? And he tells us here to pay attention to the scriptures, pay attention to this narrative, let it be a part of your life, bring it into your daily rhythms. Let this grand unfolding narrative begin to shape and form your imagination. Pay attention to this as a light for us in the midst of a dark, confusing, and confused world. Pay attention to this light that ultimately leads us to Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in the dark, but you have revealed yourself to us. You have given us this lamp in the darkness. Enable us, O oh God, to pay attention to what you've revealed. But your light has not just come in your written word. Your life has come and your light has broken into the darkness in your living word, Jesus. And we pray that as we now approach the bread and the cup, that we would be reminded once again that we're not just saved by your words, we are saved, O oh God, because you have given yourself fully and unreservedly for your creation in your son, Jesus. May that good news sink deep into our hearts and fill us with joy. In Christ's name, amen.